Welcome to our podcast, Identity Dialoguing with the Other and Myself. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Choudhury. Today we speak with John Moses, an Indigenous Canadian and member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk bands from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory and Director of Repatriation and Indigenous Relations at the Canadian Museum of History. He speaks to us about reclaiming today's Indigenous identity, the historical nature and the legal relevance of the term Indian under Canadian administrative frameworks, the matrilineal nature of some bands, systems of spirituality mixing Christian and Indigenous traditional practices, and the austere and harrowing conditions of residential schools that generations of his family have endured. He stresses the importance of reclaiming the rich Indigenous culture and heritage on the basic premise that just as natural resources have been extracted from within Indigenous traditional territories for exploitation by Western markets, and children have been removed from Indigenous families and communities for assimilation in residential schools, so too were cultural and heritage resources removed to museums. It is Indigenous leaders that must bring their perspectives, expertise, and agency to reclaiming these resources and Indigenous identity as a whole. He leaves us with an important message that although he is not opposed to the ideas of equity, diversity, and inclusion and access in Canada's cultural mosaic, we must be careful not to include Indigenous people of Canada in this framework. If Indigenous issues are lumped into a generic discussion of DEI, there is a risk of eroding the unique status of Indigenous people and situating them as just another tile in Canada's cultural mosaic. Welcome to our podcast series, Identity Dialoguing with the Other and Myself. Today we welcome John Moses, who is an Indigenous Canadian and Director of Repatriation and Indigenous Relations at the Canadian Museum of History. Welcome, John. Hello, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, thank you. So I wanted to start with asking you to tell us a little bit about your Indigenous origins and how this identity relates to you, and a little bit about the history of your um, Indigenous roots. Okay, well, again, my name is John Moses. I'm a member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk bands from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory near Brantford, Ontario, Canada. So this is a First Nations community um, in southwestern Ontario. Um, that's where both my parents were born and raised and where the majority of my extended family members continue to live and work. Um, the Six Nations Territory was founded in 1784 following the um, alliance of the Six Nations Confederacy with the British at the time of the American Revolution. Ah, very interesting. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how this identity, your Indigenous identity, and I know you grew up in the suburbs of Ottawa with me, <laughs> and also how your relationship with the reserve, um, and a little bit about the matrilineal nature of your Indigenous roots. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I can start off with explaining how our family um, came to be in the Ottawa area. My father was a residential school survivor and uh, a naval veteran of the Korean War. Following his Korean War service, he transferred to the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, I was actually born in uh, St. Hubert, Quebec, just outside of Montreal, which is where my father was stationed with the Air Force at the time and um, where my mother worked as a registered nurse. 
Um, as I say, both my parents were born and raised at Six Nations, but uh, as a function of my father's um, service in the military, we um, spent time at various uh, locations across the country. My father left the Canadian military in 1965 to pursue civilian employment with the federal government in Ottawa. So that's what brought our family to the Ottawa area. So I know that you mentioned that you reserve, you visited the reserve on numerous occasions, and that was quite important to you. I wondered if you might tell me a little bit about that experience going back to the reserve. Also, yeah, and a little bit about your, I think you, you mentioned um, something about your clan and how it relates to uh, your mother rather than your father. Yeah, well, certainly growing up in Ottawa, I guess the driving time between Ottawa and the Brantford area, it's about six hours all told. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a long drive, but not uh, not impossible. So we would, um, you know, go back a couple times throughout the year for different family gatherings and uh, holidays and that kind of thing. So we still own property down there. We still have 50 acres of farmland on the reserves third line road that uh, that we rent out to a younger cousin of mine. So we've still got those, you know, kinds of relationships down there. And we'll be um, going back down later this month, as a matter of fact, for a, for, for a family reunion. So um, yeah, we're constantly in contact. When I was a younger kid, we would spend our summers down there. We had a trailer down on the reserve on an uncle's property where we would spend time each, uh, each summer vacation. So those kinds of relationships, now, in terms of the, um, you know, the band membership aspect of things, I'm a status Indian registered band member within the meaning of Canada's federal um, Indian legislation called the Indian Act. Um, under this federal legislation, which is undeniably a colonial invention, band membership is traced through the uh, father's side of the family. So it's pat patrilineal descent. Having said that, though, within uh, traditional Six Nations or Iroquois culture, Haudenosaunee culture, um, descent and uh, community affiliation is tra traced through the, the mother's side of the family. So according to the federal government of Canada, I'm a member of the Delaware Band at Six Nations because that's my father's lineage, but within the traditional Haudenosaunee system of reckoning, reckoning kinship, in descent, I'm Bear Clan Upper Mohawk because that is my mother's clan affiliation and that was her mother's clan affiliation and her mother's mother's clan affiliation back through time. So um, that, that accounts for myself identifying both as a member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk bands at Six Nations. Okay. And the relationship to your mother's uh, clan, did this mean that there would be closer relations towards the mother's side than the father's side or? Uh, Not necessarily. Like I was uh, equally close. I am equally close to, you know, cousins and uh, you mm -hmm. know, other relatives on both sides of the family, but uh, um, just within the traditional um, system of Iroquois or Haudenosaunee matriarchy. That's how tracing the, uh, the, the um, clan descent works. It's through the mother's side of the family. Very interesting. Um, I was wondering if you could describe the Indian Indigenous identity in the Canadian context that it is administratively today. You did allude to it just previously, but how this differed in the past and understanding about administratively, um, how Indigenous identity is identified? 
Uh, certainly, well, the Indian Act is Canada's federal legislation um, under the uh, the original British North America Act of 1867, Section 9124, um, allocates the administration of Indians and lands reserved for Indians, as the, the wording actually states, to the federal level of government. So with the coming of Confederation in 1867, under the terms of the original British North America Act, it was understood that the administration of Indian affairs would be a federal or nationwide responsibility as opposed to being delegated to the individual provinces or territories. And uh, that being the case, what's called the first consolidated Indian Act came into being in 1876, and it's been modified many times over the um, over the decades and uh, it remains the piece of federal legislation that continues to uh, provide the federal level level of government with uh, responsibility for the administration of Indian affairs and I'll point out too that Indian remains um, a legal term in Canada to the extent that there is the federal legislation of the Indian Act and its continuing mandate so um, although it's uh, widely considered to be a pejorative term in many other usages, it does in fact remain a legal term here, here, here in Canada. Yeah, I wanted just to allude to something from when we were children, when you once said to me, you're an Indian and I'm an Indian too. Yeah. You recall that. It's stuck yes. in my head for the last 50 years. So it's interesting. Um, they were looking for us, but they found you. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. So it's uh, yeah, it's a very long and convoluted history, and yeah. I know people are often um, often um, you know confused by the different terminologies. I think many people within you know North American borders, anyways, recognize that the the, the term Indian in many contexts is, as I say, considered to be pejorative terminology, but it does remain a legal term. Within Canada's modern constitution, the Constitution Act of 1982, uh, the term that's used is Aboriginal, and Aboriginal is collective terminology that refers all at once to First Nations, i.e. Indian, but also Métis and Inuit, so the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, as constitutionally defined, comprises First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and then more recently with the um, passage of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that term Indigenous is, is wi now widely used uh, within Canadian borders and internationally as well, when, when people are talking about uh, international Indigenous rights in the global sense. Yeah, I think this is extremely important. I'm very glad that you brought up the terminology because with regards to changing it from Indian to Indigenous to Aboriginal, does that give us a stronger sense of empowerment or agency for Indigenous people to having changed the overall term in usage? Do you feel well, that makes a difference? Well, in some it might facilitate things in some instances, but not in others. I think whenever there's this blanket terminology used like Aboriginal or Indigenous, it always occurs to at least a certain extent, it always results to at least a certain extent in the erosion of an understanding of the uniqueness of each individual, you know, indigenous population across the country. Um, and, you know, and indeed in a global sense as well, too. So 
I had indicated previously that in terms of my own band membership at the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, on my mother's side of the family, it's Mohawk, on my father's side of the family, it's Delaware. And even there, these are these are English language terms that have been applied to our respective peoples over the over the centuries. Um, the proper term for Delaware is Lenape, and the proper word for Mohawk within the, the Mohawk language itself is actually Ganyangahega. So mm. um, as we see these efforts to try and you know, apply one um, one single word to capture the totality of the Indigenous experience in Canadian or within North American borders that always occurs um, potentially at the erosion of an understanding of the uniqueness of each individual um, Indigenous population from, from coast to coast. Well, thank you. Very clear. I, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the um, impact of policies of the past on Indigenous identity. And I wondered if you might speak to residential schools, which you know, uh, in personal experience, the impact it's had. I wonder if you might talk about how past policies have impacted Indigenous identity. Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, on my mother's side of the family, and her maiden name is Montour, so her extended family, it's the Montour family. On my mother's side of the family, she had the benefit of being raised at home in a conventional or traditional Six Nations family setting, you know, by her parents and with her with her siblings. Things were rather different on my father's side of the family, on, uh, on the Moses side of the family. Um, there are actually three generations of the Moses family comprising my father, grandfather and great-grandfather who were raised at the Mohawk Institute Indian Residential School in Branford. And um, my father was there under exceptionally severe wartime and post-war conditions from 1942 until 1947. His father was there during the 19-teens, roughly at the time of the First World War. And uh, my great-grandfather was there even earlier in the 1880s. So that makes me the first... Uh, generation after three that wasn't raised at the Mohawk Institute, uh, that uh, particular um, facility being closed as a residential school in 1970. So um, I believe it, uh, it holds the unique distinction of being the longest surviving residential school in Canada. It was founded at some point in the 1830s and it uh, continued on right up until 1970. So, you know, that's, um, you know, a period of what, 140 years that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, the school served different perceived needs during different um, decades. When my great grandfather Nelson Moses was there in the 1880s, it was essentially a religious training school where likely young men and women from the Six Nations community were sent to be trained as Indigenous Anglican clergy and teachers with the intention that they would be sent out west as the process of signing the numbered treaties occurred across the western provinces and territories of Canada. So the, you know, the, the idea, and this was run on a contract basis, basically by the Anglican Church of Canada for the government of Canada. The thinking at that point was that you would have, you know, quote unquote, educated and civilized Indians from the eastern part of the country being sent out west to help with the process of assimilation in the western part of the country. Um, that plan never 
panned out of all, you know, out of all the many dozens, if not hundreds of uh, students who would have been raised at the Mohawk Institute at that time period during the late, um, late 1800s, there was only a bare handful of people who ever did that. Most of the um, people upon leaving the Mohawk Institute in that time period just gradually melded back into the uh, Six Nations Reserve population. When my grandfather, Ted Moses, was at the Mohawk Institute in the 19-teens, it was largely run as a military-themed boarding academy. At the, you know, And this was sort of part and parcel of during that era of global militarization that would result with the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Um, it deteriorated throughout the decades of the 1920s and 30s and into the Great Depression. And unfortunately, by the time that my father and his siblings attended, he was there with a younger sister and an older brother. They were there from 1942 until 1947. So basically at the height of the Second World War and then into the few years following the, um, the Second World War. By that period, the government and the church had, you know, even dispensed with any idea of providing the children with any, any sort of education or training. They were there to provide forced agricultural labor as a contribution to the civilian food production effort on the Canadian home front during wartime, because the residential school itself, aside from the building itself, it actually sat on 350 acres of prime southern Ontario farmland with um, varieties of crops and orchards and livestock under cultivation. So the children were put to work running that farm operation, as I say, as a contribution to the civilian food production effort on the Canadian home front at the time of the Second World War. So, so I see a lot of interesting themes that come out of what you just described. One uh, was this identity as clergy and second identity as military. And I know both your father and yourself and perhaps your grandfather were in the military, Canadian military. Um, yeah. And, and uh, it's quite interesting, you know, what this means with regards to an identity that was forced on you or that you took upon yourself due to these residential schools. And also whether um, your language and your culture were actually encouraged in these schools during the time. I wondered if you might comment on that. Yeah, well, certainly there was no encouragement of the language or the culture. It was, um, you know, the whole purpose of the schools was to assimilate Indigenous people into mainstream Canadian society, which necessarily meant the, you know, the, the, the eradication of distinctive cultural expressions and that kind of thing, including Indigenous languages. So the children would have been at whatever era they attended the schools at, they would have been severely punished if they were caught speaking their, their you know, various Indigenous languages and that kind of thing. Um, in terms of the military service, yeah, you know, I guess my father and his own life and career exemplifies that. He was at the residential school, which, by the way, was called the Mush Hole. The nickname for the school was the Mush Hole after the mm -hmm. state hole corn mush that uh, formed the basis of their uh, of their diet. Um, he was there providing that forced agricultural labor, as I said, from 1942 until 1947. Um, he went in when he was eight years old and got out when he was 15, I believe, or just mm -hmm. turning 15. And um, later himself joined the Royal Canadian Navy in 1950, and he served in the, the Royal Canadian Navy from 
1950 until 1955, including Korean War service um, aboard a ship called HMCS Iroquois, Her Majesty. Mm -hmm. Oh, Majesty. interesting. HMSC Iroquois. So it yeah. used a native. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if many of your listeners will be familiar with, you know, sort of British and Dominion naval terminologies, but that moniker HMCS variously stands for His Majesty or Her Majesty's Canadian ship. And there was a political particular a particular class of destroyers during the era of the Second World War and the Korean War that were tribal class destroyers. And so in the Royal Canadian Navy during the 1940s and into the 50s, there were a number of um a number of these tribal class destroyers that individually bore the names of different uh, First Nations groups. So, for example, there was HMCS Iroquois, HMCS Athabascan, Haida, Sioux, and Cuyahoga. So, do you feel that, interestingly enough, that you weren't allowed to speak your language or have your culture, but they appropriated a name for their naval destroyers? There's something quite sadly yeah. ironic about that. Yeah, certainly there's an irony there. And it was, um, you know, the, that's a whole huge topic in itself is the, you know, the British or not the British, but sort of military appropriations of indigenous terminologies, because, of course, there are all sorts of, um, you know, unhealthy or racist stereotypes that attribute extraordinary levels of stealth or cunning to to indigenous people. So it's um, something that you find with, I, I believe, military organizations right around the world, basically, is, you know, the, the, the attempt to incorporate uh, uh, certain aspects of indigenous iconography. And know, identity. For, yeah, for, for their own, for their own purposes. So very, very interesting. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about um, how your work um, has contributed to a dynamic construction of today's Indigenous community identity. And, you know, um, you have fascinating work. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about it. And um... yeah, sure. Well, aside from my own time in the military, that basically, you know, I spent five years in the Canadian military between high school and going back to college and university. So I, you know, basically consider that to be my own sort of extended grade 13, I guess. But um, I, after five years in the military, I decided I wasn't going to be making a career of it. So um, uh, I had always been interested in, you know, in history and um, I wound up taking a museum technology course at Algonquin College right here in Ottawa, which eventually um, led to work here at the Canadian Museum of History and elsewhere within the Department of Canadian Heritage, um, you know, subsequent to, to receiving my, my college diploma in museum studies, I completed uh, degree work as well. So I've, um, um, I have a diploma of applied arts and museum technology a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies, a master's degree in Canadian studies, and then I've um, uh, completed uh, coursework towards the co uh, completion of a PhD in cultural mediation. So all that to say, I'm currently the director for repatriation and Indigenous relations here at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec, in, in the national capital region. Uh, we're a federal crown corporation within the Department of Canadian Heritage um, within the museum field, I had actually started out as an artifact conservator. So these are the people who do the, the hands-on repair and restoration of, you know, the artworks and the artifacts comprising museum collections um, is a function of my 
initial training or my earlier training, I had the opportunity of completing internships at the British Museum in London, England, and then also with the National Museum of the American Indian when they were still based in New York City. They're, they're now in Washington, D.C., but when I was with them, they were in New York City. That was in the mid-1990s. Um, but yeah, the, the work that I'm doing right now, I've, I've always sought, whether it's been working as a conservator or now doing the, the, the work that I'm doing as a museum director for repatriation and Indigenous relations, it's always been my goal to provide an Indigenous perspective and, and build Indigenous awareness within the, 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 the federal museums and heritage sector. So. And what would you consider this Indigenous perspective to be? Well, it's always making sure that, you know, increasingly in this day and age, it's understood that museums are not operating in isolation and not relying on their own internal staff who, you know, it remains a fact, are largely non-Indigenous. Um, you can't have non-Indigenous peoples presuming to speak on behalf of Indigenous peoples within a museum's and heritage setting. You need Indigenous experts on Indigenous issues providing direct, unfiltered, um, indigenous perspectives on important matters. So, you know, within my work right now at the federal level, that uh, includes uh, providing indigenous perspectives within core museum functions, comprising collections and research, exhibitions and programs, and then museum policy and administration. So, so I'm kind of interested in knowing um, how uh, artifacts um, contribute to the construction and investigation and feelings of Indigenous identity. What is, why artifacts, why are they important for the aesthetic reasons for other, what other reasons are artifacts important in contributing to identity? Yeah, well, all of the above, really, certainly there's the, you know, we're not just looking at the material aspects of the objects themselves, like their materials of manufacture and their sort of respective agents of deterioration and that kind of thing. We're very much, much interested in preserving the intangible cultural heritage that's embedded in objects as well. So if you think about the, the, the process of making and manufacturing any particular um, you know, article or item of material culture, for example, a basket, for example, there are specialized indigenous language terminologies used to describe the natural resources from which the basket is made. There are indigenous language terminologies associated with the various steps throughout its process of manufacture. So um, with the, you know, it's an interesting tie in much of the work that I'm doing in repatriation right now is related to Canada's ongoing um, indigenous land claims process. So we're still in the process of signing the federal government of Canada is still in the process of negotiating and signing modern treaties with Indigenous groups across all parts of the country. And within each and every um, land claim process these days, quite aside from those chapters of the final agreement document that have to do with the natural resources and governance and taxation and that kind of thing, there are equally detailed chapters having to do with culture, heritage, and language. So the, you know, the basic premise there is that just as historically as natural resources have been removed from within indigenous territories for, you know, export to Western or non-indigenous markets, so too have cultural resources been removed from within indigenous communities, leaving indigenous hands to 
wind up in non-Indigenous museums, not just in Canada, but around the world. You know, for example, you can find you can find artifacts from my own community at the Six Nations of the Grand River. I've personally encountered them in museums spanning the, you know, the National Museum of Argentina to Bu in Buenos Aires to um, to um, you know museums in Moscow and Saint Petersburg and Russia and at various wow. in between. So there was a you know a real global curiosity about indigenous peoples from within north american borders and from you know across the the western hemisphere for that matter that have resulted in indigenous cultural properties from within canada's present day borders can now be found in museums around the world so do you i mean i'm asking a bit of a devil's advocate question but having those objects in other countries do that lead to a better understanding of Indigenous people in Canada by the fact that people can seize artifacts in other places? Or do you feel that these artifacts should stay within the communities themselves? Well, certainly, it, you know, it, it all relates to how they are presented, how they are interpreted. And, you know, within the, the modern day museum and heritage sector, not just nationally, but globally, you know, very basic issues about who gets to speak on whose behalf regarding representations of indigeneity in the museum and gallery space. And, you know, as I said earlier, from my perspective, we need indigenous, we need indigenous experts on indigenous issues, providing direct, unfiltered um, indigenous perspectives on important matters, and that includes how to interpret indigenous material culture within museum settings. Um, having said that, the work that I'm doing in terms of repatriation, by definition, repatriation is all about the the the, the permanent physical return of indigenous cultural properties from museums back to their indigenous communities of origin. So that's what. Uh, repatriation is by definition. Having said that within a modern museum environment, uh, repatriation itself in that sense is just one outcome along a spectrum of indigenous engagement activities. And here at the Canadian Museum of History, where I work when we speak of indigenous engagement, we're talking about everything from the specialized training that we provide to indigenous muse museology interns each year in this museum's indigenous internship program which uh, this year as a matter of fact is is marking its 30th year of operation to our ordinary suite of short and long-term loans to various um, shared authority agreements where in you know objects can will will be shared back and forth between this museum and uh, museum-like facilities within their indigenous communities of origin, and then indeed at the far end of the spectrum up to and including repatriation itself, which is the permanent uh, physical return of selected items from the museum back to their Indigenous communities of origin. So, so what I understand is handling these objects with care and with having Indigenous understanding and perspectives in not just a piece of curiosity, but that it actually has the respect um, and yes, care yeah. by Indigenous yeah. and, and also by sharing. Oh, that's really, yeah. really interesting. I actually had another question mm -hmm. regarding religion and spirituality, and it comes mm -hmm. back a little bit to uh, the colonial times and, and how um, religion and spirituality has evolved in these communities over time. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you might comment about that. 
Well, certainly, you know, it's not uncommon to um, find many Indigenous people today who, in, you know, in terms of their personal spiritual views, they will embrace Indigenous spirituality at the same time that they might uh, uh, be active in some of the mainstream, you know, Christian denominations, whether of the, you know, the Roman Catholic or Protestant variety. So it's simply a fact of the history in many Indigenous communities across the country, you get people practicing, um, you know, at the, at the same time that they continue to practice their respective brands of Indigenous traditional spirituality, they they might be affiliated with, um, you know, any of the, the mainstream, you know, Christian denominations in that sense. So that's not uncommon. Um, certainly at the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, where my family is from, there is a... Um, you know, people are, people are, there, there are some extended families who are adherents of the traditional um, spiritual movement called the longhouse religion or the longhouse um, system of spirituality at the same time that there are other families like my own extended family who um, are, are not of that persuasion, but rather are adherents of various uh, Protestant denominations. So, um, you will find, um, you know, variations of that within Indigenous communities right across the country, I would say. So that's interesting. You did mention in a previous conversation that um, people could be adhering to Protestant Christianity at the same time conducting smudge ceremonies, or you mentioned something. Yeah, there, you know, there, there are different, um, different features that are, you know, I would suggest a hallmark of Indigenous spirituality, um, including pipe ceremonies and smudging ceremonies and that kind of thing. So depending upon what particular Indian reserve community you're talking about, you will find, as I say, people exercising that kind of uh, traditional spirituality alongside their participation perhaps in some of the uh you know the mainstream um religious denominations and um you know in some areas of the country the indigenous peoples as a function of the history of you know colonialism and of um uh, religious conversion are you know in terms of their conventional religious affiliation they might be roman catholic in other areas of the country, like at the Six Nations of the Grand River, the Mohawks of Tyendinaga, um, the primary Christian affiliation, I would suggest, is Anglican. And um, But at the same time, you'll get people within those communities who um, practice both um, traditional Indigenous spirituality alongside their, um, you know, their church affiliation, whatever that might be. So. Right. Well, I, I find this has been a fascinating discussion, and I wondered if you might leave listeners with maybe um, uh, an understanding of what it, what Indigenous identity means in Canada. Of course, it's all multifaceted, it's individual, it's mm -hmm. many different types of identities, but I wondered what you wish for because I think you said something very interesting um, in a previous conversation about not including the Indigenous identity in the diversity, equity, and inclusion discussion. And I wondered if you might have something to say about that, if you might want yeah. to. Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, certainly in principle, I, I would suggest myself personally, and I would suggest most Indigenous people 
generally are obviously not opposed to the ideals of equity, diversity, inclusion, and 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 access. But we have to be very careful here, especially within the Canadian context, both legally, whether we're talking about the mainstream Canadian legal system itself, or even within various Indigenous traditional law systems, um, Indigenous peoples in Canada possess constitutionally protected what are called Section 35 Aboriginal and Treaty Rights that do not accrue to other equity-seeking groups in, um, in in Canadian society. That's just a, it's a practical and legal reality. So there's always a danger if Indigenous issues are lumped in with these other overarching, more generic discussions of equity, diversity, and inclusion. It has the potential to erode a knowledge or an implementation of unique Aboriginal rights um, and, um, you know, uh, thus rendering Aboriginal peoples or Indigenous peoples in Canada is merely another tile in Canada's overarching ethnocultural mosaic. And I would suggest if that occurs that, you know, that has the net effect of accomplishing and completing the work of assimilation where Indigenous peoples are you know, just it just rolled into this sort of overarching um, multicultural mosaic. It's, it's on the one hand, there's everybody appreciates or most people appreciate the the ethnocultural mosaic that is Canada in the present day. But as I say, that can't occur at the expense of a realization and implementation and respect for unique Aboriginal and treaty rights that simply don't accrue to other equity seeking groups within Canadian society. Well, thank you. That was very clear and a very um, in-depth analysis of the place of Indigenous people mm -hmm. in their original homelands. Right. Uh, I really want to thank you, John. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I hope we can continue to discuss. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. For this podcast has been brought to you by Saffron Global Health. It complements workshops that are designed to create a safe space to talk about identity and to create a sense of belonging. If you want to learn more or get involved, please visit our website at www.saffronglobalhealth.com.